You're listening to part three of a special episode of 2036, the podcast, recorded in front of a live audience at Emory University, with your host, Munir Megjani, featuring Carol Anderson. So we talked a little bit about the Tulsa massacre, mm. the Black Wall Street, right? Mm-hmm. The, the most prosperous community of black leadership and wealth and trainings and it all went down because of a white mob. Is the American dream a lie that's fed to black people? I love that question. It is not a lie because then that would mean conceding defeat. What has to happen, though, is the work has to happen in the white community Mm. that doesn't see everything as a zero-sum game that the only way that black folks can get is at the expense of whites. Because that was part of, that's part of how politicians help fuel the polarization. Right, right. And it's what sparked Tulsa. It was you had this thriving black community of lawyers, of dentists, of doctors. And being in Oklahoma where you had so many poor whites in that Tulsa area, and it was like, how did they get that? Mm-hmm. How did they get that? And looking for the spark right. to be able to justify wiping that out. So that kind of angst, that kind of envy, that kind of anger is really fueled in a context of racism that sees everything as a zero-sum game. They're taking our jobs. They're taking our kids' place in school. They're taking, they're taking, they're taking. And remember when I talked about the Rick Santorum School mm-hmm, of History? Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> yes. So what you're getting at is, is the scarcity mindset that's fed to us by, to some extent, the 1% that's only the ones really privileging from it, mm-hmm. right? But they're able to create a emotional, mental, sometimes spiritual polarization in people having trouble to have decent conversations, having trouble finding the middle. How do you have that conversation with Simona on the opposing end? I start with stories. I love that. Because it's in the stories that you're able to reach into the humanity of a situation. And you're able to reach into the, Lord, that's not right, kind of sense. And then when you begin to get to those stories, then you can begin talking about the kinds of structural frameworks that led us to this point. In the film, I Too, Mm -hmm. one of the vignettes that we do, for instance, is Ocoee, Florida, Mm. which was the 1920 election right after the passage of the 19th Amendment. And the question was, well, do black women have the right to vote? Mm. And Florida was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, And you saw all kinds of hell raining down on that black community for trying to vote Mm -hmm. and all kinds of machinations. One of them, for instance, was requiring that the poll tax receipts had to be notarized. Mm -hmm. So not only do you have to pay to vote, but you also have to get it notarized. Well, the town fathers had sent the notary out of town on a fishing trip. So there was no notary to notarize the poll tax receipts. So when you just start telling that story, you're like, wait a minute, folks 
paid their poll tax. Wow. They went to go vote and then they couldn't because there was no notary republic, but you required a notary, but you sent the notary out of town. I mean, just that kind of basic framework. But it's the same thing when I'm talking about Alabama and the voter ID. So Alabama says you must have a government issued photo ID to vote. But then says that your public housing ID is not an acceptable form of a government-issued photo ID. Now, does it get more uh, government-issued than public housing, <laughs> right? And then what the governor did was to shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties in Alabama. Mm. So folks then had to go like 50 miles to go get the driver's license that they needed to be able to vote. But Alabama's ranked 48th in the nation right. in terms of public transportation. And so if you don't have a driver's license, how do you get the 50 miles one way and the 50 miles back to get the card that you need to be able to exercise your right to vote as an American citizen? When you lay it out like that, these kinds of really structural machinations mm -hmm. to block folks from voting then you can begin to have the conversation. So I get there through storytelling. It almost always boggles my mind with the amount of creativity and energy that they put into it. You think we could quite literally change the world if we just focused it on the right things. Oh my gosh, really? I'm like, really? I, this is it. I mean, so I think about the voter turnout race that we've seen coming up against all of these barriers, right. the voter ID, the shutting down of polling places, the elimination of drop boxes, mm. right? All of these things. And I think about the money that organizations spend in fighting against this and also in terms of organizing their constituencies to be able to figure out how to maneuver. Could you imagine what we would be able to do if we weren't coming up against this mess? Such a waste of time, is, energy, yes. resources. And I do appreciate several times President Carter during his town hall with Emory students mm -hmm. will ask when women got the right to vote. And then he'll correct them and say, well, white women did, but black women then get the right to vote here. And that's really the true statement. Yes. And he's someone who's been a champion of that and has often brought that up in his topics. Yes. Black women didn't really get the right to vote until 1965. Right with the Voting Rights Act. And even then, you had states like South Carolina mm. and Mississippi that were fighting it, fighting it, right. fighting it. Right. You can't help but think that they're individuals who have been just so ordained right, by these lies, the misinformation, that it's hard to have conversations sometimes, who look at Emory celebrating Juneteenth and go, do we really need that? Where do you think Emory stands as an organization with what it's doing? I think we've come a long way. I think we've got much further to go. And I think we need not to be chastened mm. by the word woke. Yep. Because what that is really dealing with is like I teach the civil rights movement and we see the videos of the epithets being hurled at black folks trying to go to school, mm. for instance. What woke is about is about being civil. Yeah. It is about yeah. recognizing somebody's full humanity. There is nothing wrong with recognizing somebody's full humanity. Yeah. And we need to lean into that mm -hmm. and not be on the defensive about being woke. Can you talk about the importance of grace in these conversations? Mm -hmm. That's a tough one. Um, grace is 
recognizing where somebody is mm. and understanding that there was a pathway that got them there and then listening and helping them come to you where there is the recognition of the full humanity. So I did a piece with one of the TV stations here did a thing in talking with parents who were opposed to teaching critical race theory in their school board kind of thing, right? And so it was to speak with them about what really is critical race mm. theory and then what is behind this assault of using critical race theory as the veneer mm. to get at, we don't want you to really learn, your children to really learn real American history. And it gets couched in terms of, they're teaching our kids to hate America. Right, right. No, because the framing of that is to understand that the thing about America is it's an aspirational nation. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And what you see in American history is this struggle from all of these folk to make that aspiration real. That is a powerful, incredible history. It is a history that draws folks here. It is a history that has people standing in line 12 hours to vote. Mm. It is a history that has folks marching and protesting. It is a history that should be embraced. Where we end up with a problem is where you have folks who treat that aspiration as an achievement. Mm. Like we're already there. Right. Right, no, no right. son, no son, no son, right? So that battle that you're seeing in terms of critical race theory and uh, is about treating the aspiration as if it's already achieved, like it's already yeah. real. And therefore, it then allows a narrative to come up that when we're seeing endemic poverty, that's because you made a bad choice. Mm. That's because you have a culture of poverty. So it allows you to excise the role of structural racism mm. from the conditions that made that possible. Yeah, I tell people all the time that I think the American dream is that there is an American dream. It is not a destination, but a journey. Yeah, I love that. It really is, it really is. It is a way that you think about, I will be able to breathe. Mm. My babies will be able to breathe and learn and thrive. And it is that hope that is so powerful, and that's why we fight. So given all of your background, your research, your students' research, how would you rate the health of our democracy right now? Ooh, <laughs> we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. We're in trouble. We're in trouble because we have folks who have their hands on the levers of power who don't believe in democracy or who are trying to get their hands on the levers of power. So when you think about it, we've got about 300 candidates who are election deniers mm -hmm. who are running for attorney general, governor, and secretary of state to be in position to deny the votes of American citizens in 2024 if that actual tally doesn't come out the way they want. That's not how this thing is supposed to work. Yeah. The other piece that I think that, that makes this so hard is we have this notion of American exceptionalism, mm. you know, and it's like, you know, it's America. <laughs> 
And the problem with that is, is that when folks are going, danger, Will Robinson, danger, mm. this is what this means. Did you see January 6th? This is what this means. And they're like, no, nah, but that can't happen here because we're America. We're exceptional. And no, it has happened here. That again, that was one of the reasons why I did the film I Too. Mm -hmm. So we could move from January 6th to the Wilmington coup of 1898, mm -hmm. where you had a duly elected government that was overthrown by white supremacists. And then they installed their own regime in Wilmington, North Carolina. And the rest of the system was just like, okay. Mm. And they just accepted the new mayor. They just accepted the new alderman. They just accepted the new police chief. And there wasn't another African-American political leader in Wilmington for the next 75 years. Wow. So one of the things is to understand it can happen here. And it affects all of us. When democracy is corroded and eroded in one part, it's weakening the other parts. Mm. So given all of that, if you could implement the perfect blueprint to protect our democracy, mm -hmm. what would that look like? It would look like automatic voter registration. Mm -hmm. It would look like civic education starting in probably junior high and up through high school. It would look like real consequences for those who holler voter fraud, voter mm -hmm. fraud, voter fraud and doing so without any evidence of massive rampant mm. voter fraud, that there has to be consequences for really bad behavior, yeah. and that we really think about how do we broaden this democracy. Mm. That's what that would look like. Yeah. Real engagement with civic education, automatic voter registration across the board, 16 and 17 year olds automatically pre-registered mm. to vote. Yeah, so by the time they turn 18, boom. So even as someone who's in this space, just in our short time here, I've learned about so many things that I wasn't educated on. So often, we don't know what we don't know, right? And Neil deGrasse Tyson in a recent interview talked about the more you learn, the more the perimeter of the unknown also continues to grow. Mm -hmm. So for those individuals listening, how do you encourage people to ask the right questions so they can then go do the research? Thinking about the things where you're reading something and you're like, whoa, what is that? Or how did that happen? Or you see something and you're going, and you trust your gut. Mm. When your gut is going, huh? Listen to that gut and then understand that there are probably have been scholars there who have written on this. There have been really engaged journalists who have written on this, who have researched it, and begin to hunt that down and begin to listen to multiple voices because, and asking those questions, who is this source? What's their agenda? What evidence are they using to make these claims? And each one of those gets us closer and closer to being able to be fully engaged in a fully knowledgeable mm. citizenry. And it's true. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Right, right. <laughs> Which actually is that part of that discomfort because we all know the folks who like know everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They don't feel the discomfort. Yes. We have to be mm. comfortable in that discomfort. You know, so it was like me with Philando Castile. Mm. I had already written four books by then. And with Philando Castile, I went, er, do African-Americans have Second Amendment yeah. rights? Yeah. Let me go find out. And I had to deal with my discomfort. 
I am a Cold War historian, mm. right? I had to deal with my discomfort by going back into the 17th century and really reading deeply and fully and then checking with my colleagues who were experts in the area, going, okay, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this. They're like, yeah, you're reading all the right stuff. It's like, okay, <laughs> okay. Well, this one disagrees with that one. Yes, but it looks like this is the source of that disagreement. Mm. Yes. And so it is doing that heavy lifting and knowing that this hunt for knowledge is really cool. It is really cool. It is invigorating. It is exciting. And it helps us understand what we're seeing with greater clarity. So many people talking about clarity have, in just the past couple of hours or days, told me that They've written their thesis statements based on your books. I have a friend currently, uh, Rua, running in Gwinnett County who wrote her thesis for law school based on this. And there's so many individuals who look up to you and use your work as part of the basis for their activism work. A lot of times being in that work and also feel a sense of hopelessness because you don't see the change. For those listening, what would you say to them? Change takes a long time because you are looking at stuff that has been built over centuries. Mm. But know that where you are right now is because somebody centuries ago started pushing mm. for that change. So you may not see the end result, but you are living in the push for people saying, not on my watch. I teach a class, War Crimes and Genocide. You know, and it's one of those classes where you're just like, dang, because I mean, we are really <laughs> looking at the absolute brutality yeah. and the inhumanity that folk can rain yeah. down. But at each step, one of the things that my students consistently see is that there has been somebody who stood up and said, not on my watch. Mm. And then marshaled resources around mm. them to help change that condition. That's what's so cool. And so it looks daunting. I think about E.D. Morel over in Belgium, who the King Leopold in the Congo was being heralded as this anti-slavery champion and as this great humanitarian. But E.D. Morel started noticing that incredible resources were being sent into Belgium and only things being sent into the Congo were weapons and, and troops. Mm. And he's like, this isn't right. And E.D. Morel started organizing to stop what King Leopold was doing in the Congo. And he won. And you look at just yesterday reading news about Haiti, right? One of the first black African nations to receive freedom. Now one of the poorest ones in our Western Hemisphere. We're sending military troops there on a perhaps recent discovery of oil. And so the history that continues to repeat itself just makes it all the more evident as to why going into those archives and doing your research is so important. Exactly. I mean, so, you know, we, we herald Haiti because it was the first massive overthrow of slavery. Mm -hmm. What we don't get in that history is that Haiti was isolated mm -hmm. internationally. And so the international community demanded reparations yeah. from Haiti 
to France, France. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so imagine you have just thrown off your oppressor and you can't move because your oppressor is demanding all of your resources because you refuse to be oppressed yeah. anymore. Yeah. And so when we talk about Haiti's poverty, part of it is we've got to include that in the narrative because it was over a long period of time mm. where Haiti had to pay France. Yeah. That's why I love history. Yeah. That's yeah. why reading history, knowing history, it helps put things in perspective. Yeah. Carlton Mackey from the Center of Ethics at Emory and I had a chance to actually go to Haiti together and learning just a dis justices, the injustices that happened there. Mm. We couldn't even think of examples of how to define those when we came back because it was so complex and so different. Yes, yes. So Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for everything that you do, everything that you continue to do. And for those listening, I hope that you will continue to seek discomfort and remember to share your stories and your humanity with them. Thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Ah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. 2036 The Podcast is developed and produced by Emory's Division of Advancement and Alumni Engagement. This episode was directed by Ben Nisley, edited by Roland Jordan, and produced by Darren Miller, Hannah Hope, and Subhan Day. To learn more about 2036, Emory's campaign to transform the future, visit 2036 dot emory dot edu